always looking to justify your misogyny. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle, where we try to have thoughtful conversations about awkward topics on our search to find the middle. announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I act as if God exists. Put your masks on. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Hey Roger, what have you been up to? Uh, my nephew uh, was given a skateboard for his birthday. I mean, I think you probably remember I used to skate when I was back at school. And seeing him have that new skateboard uh, just brought back a flood of memories. And I was like, oh, you know, I want to actually get my board out of the garage. So yeah, obviously, like, apart from this podcast, it's the ultimate midlife crisis to actually, for, you know, uh, an old man to get on a skateboard again. What what were the shoes that um, you skaters used to wear? Etnies or Globes. Yeah. (laughs) Do, Do you still have a pair of Etnies? No, I bought some. Um, I bought some New Balance shoes, but I've already torn them up, and um, I'm in trouble. There was a bunch of schoolgirls just sitting there watching me, like eating chips, just nervously watching me, like waiting for me to fall. <laughs> I don't know who would have been more nervous, the girls or you. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so. You know, like when you can tell someone's you know going to stack it or something. My son's showing a little bit of interest in it, but I don't want him to do it. It's such a dangerous thing. It just makes me so anxious, him being out there. You know, it's like an inherently dangerous thing. It's amazing, like just speaking about the intersection of kids and skating. I remember as a kid, I didn't skate in the stand-up sense, but I remember with a mate, we used to sit on the skateboard and go down this massive hill. It was a footpath with driveways and you could just totally imagine one day a car coming out and just clopping us and um, God knows what would have happened. But it's funny, like when you think about growing up, even our age, because I remember when we were growing up, it was always the story was, oh yeah, you know, from your parents, oh, we we used to go around and do all sorts of crazy stuff that you're not allowed to do anymore. And But like, I just feel like that's just, that trend's continued in that, you know, growing up, we used to do things that I, I can't even imagine kids doing nowadays. Yeah, I mean, like, would you would you wouldn't want your boy to skate right it's just so dangerous yeah i just there's so many things like that that you you really just don't want um your kid to be around because you know better right but it probably is a important part of life as well right well and the other thing is you know kids pick up independence and new skills and and learn the ways of the world in in a way that they probably don't when they're sitting at home watching tv or youtube or video games or whatever i remember reading about I think it was like this family in America and they decided that they would let their young child, I don't know how old the kid was, like maybe 10 or 11 or something like that, ride the subway in New York on their own. Oh, my God. And it was like, it was actually a conscious decision they made because they wanted to build up like independence for the for the child. And, and you know, it was it was actually a deliberate, very, you know, this is like a fairly thoughtful family that's made this call to build resilience and independence, but it got like the decision got pilloried, the parents were slammed for being irresponsible and all this sort of stuff. So it's like, yeah, it's just this like tension that, you know, it's hard to find the the middle on, so to speak. Well, in that particular respect, I do know that the Asian parenting middle is very far from the Western parenting middle. This idea of independence or whatever when it comes to your kids and that example especially, it's just seen as carelessness and laziness um, from 
the Chinese parenting perspective, right? And I know my parents comment all the time and I've seen other family friends comment when they see, you know, white parents and their blasé attitude towards um, bodily harm, whether it's at the park and climbing trees or different little things like that. It's a very different attitude, right? This idea of, oh, you know, when they fall and they hurt themselves, that's how they learn. And um, <laughs> Asian parents just look at that and think it's sloppy parenting. <laughs> <laughs> and that you're doing that out of laziness and not really like a conscious decision about it. Well, I think it's it's a bit of both, right? I mean, it obviously has benefits to the parents not having to basically shadow your kids on every move. But I do think like if I had to say which side I landed on, I wouldn't definitely um, favor the free range parenting method as opposed to the helicopter parenting method. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, I, I mean, I'll say it again, I've said it before on, the, on this podcast, you know, kids are anti-fragile. They learn from their experiences and the lesson that they learn, it might be climbing a tree, you know, it might be preferable for them to learn the lesson climbing the tree than to learn the lesson when they're older and doing even more wild things. So, you know, get those lessons, those life lessons in early when they're younger and, and then they won't make mistakes when they're older, I guess. Just like uh, almost 40-year-olds skateboarding in the, in the park, I guess. <laughs> It just seems like the example of the subway, though, is just, to me, it, it just seems misguided, right? It seems like some new age parenting bullshit because I think, like, you have an attitude where you in, ensure the big risks and you and you just accept the little ones, right? And I think of all the situations and stuff that could go wrong and the exposure and what you can and can't control, I think a child on the subway is a, is a bit of an X factor. But, well, see, uh, but, you know. but see, I'm going to defend it because in that situation, it's probably more a reversion to how th in the days gone by things would have been. So, like, it's like correcting an overshooting of being too cautious and too too careful. And, I mean, in the context of, like, the subway, I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, like, I was getting the train to school when I was 12. So, you know, and, and it's, like, in terms of danger and risks Man, and all this that. Ain't, this ain't New York City. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but like, <laughs> we grew up. like, yeah, but, like, it, it's safety in numbers, right? Like, all of the assaults and all that sort of stuff that happens when there aren't people around right so well wait how old was the kid obviously i'm working without all the information here i can't recall the exact age but like 10 11 right that's that's what i've got in my mind it might be younger it might be older i'm not sure but and and, and actually just i'm gonna call you up on on something on you mentioned like asian parenting right or west yeah. you know asian sort of values and the like have you seen that um show on netflix i think it's called old enough it's like a japanese show and it's all about how japanese parents and their really really young kids off to do errands and stuff so there's literally yeah. like a, Jap i think japanese japanese people aren't asian that's your first mistake <laughs> right they're just, they're on that weird island they're a social they're pretty much like a social experiment right closed borders for 100 years or whatever they're not part of the asians that okay. i speak of. i'm talking about <laughs> south east, east asian okay all right right well nonetheless they're even more extreme because they had like this three-year-old toddler go to the shop to buy groceries on it, on his own. So like he was at the supermarket or whatever and he, he bought himself some chocolate instead and then he, he leaves and realizes he didn't buy the thing that he came for and had to go back and he put it. <laughs> yeah, but like, I mean, Japanese society, again, is different, right? Like it's all very conformist and there's like, it's very orderly and there's low crime and all this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. It's a different game there. And just like, obviously you have to look at it case by case, but I definitely think the Australian she'll be right mate attitude doesn't always translate the best under every scenario. 
I'm I'm with you in the idea that kids do need independence and they, you know, getting hurt or taking a little bit of risk taking can be, a, you know, a very good teacher. I, I get that. Um, but I also think that what I what I have personally witnessed is much more just carelessness and thoughtlessness about it. So, um, I'm just reading the official advice here is um, officially the MTA recommends that children under the age of eight be accompanied by an adult or responsible youth at least 12 years old when riding its trains. So, I mean, I, I live with that story on a 10 or 11 year old. So, this is like um, a, a responsible youth is 12 years old. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess so. I felt like I was pretty responsible by the time I was 11 or 12. Well, not maybe not responsible is the wrong word, <laughs> but I was very capable, very capable of all that stuff. But I think, yeah, t- 10 or under, I just don't think you have enough experience to navigate tough situations if they occur. And if it all goes well, it's because by chance or probability sake, you didn't run into that. So you're just blaming the victim, aren't you? Victim yeah. blaming. <laughs> so the so just I've I've just googled the um the article. So the, the headline here is I let my nine year old ride the subway alone. I got labelled the world's worst mum. So Yeah. When when she says subway, is she talking about like the New York City yeah, yeah. subway? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fuck that. Like, that, I don't know. Like, just... I, I, I'm, I'm kind of no. I'm, I'm of a different view to you. I, I'm, I'm all for it. I say good on okay. it. Okay. I, I just, well, you, I doubt you would have sent your boy nine years old on the in the middle of city rail, kind of like out to Kings. Cross oh, I'm or totally for it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get him to walk himself to school and all that sort of stuff. He doesn't want to do it. <laughs> you see, he really knows, right? He really knows. Dad's not going to protect me. I'm going to have to strap up. <laughs> Yeah, but we're not talking about like, you know, go to the, I don't know, what's the most dodgy part of New York? Um, go there at- um, The meatpacking district. Yeah, go to the meatpacking district at, um, you know, midnight or something. Like we're talking about in the middle of the day or 9 a.m. peak hour, that sort of thing. Like that, that's, I don't know, I think that's that's fine. Yeah, like yeah. I think it's reasonable. If, if, you, if you're taking it from a probability thing, it's also fine probably to leave your door unlocked at night, right? Nothing's yeah. going to happen. Don't you? Don't you leave your door unlocked at night? I do not. Again, Asian. <laughs> I had plans. Wouldn't trust anyone. But you know what I mean? Like probability-wise, you're not going to get robbed. You probably. Well, I think I think the difference on that one is that it's a no regrets measure to lock the door, whereas there's actual benefits to letting your child sort of do things like that. Well, it's going to be a slightly more independent nine-year-old versus waiting when everyone take, learns how to take the train. No, they, 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 that'll <laughs> it'll build their mindset and their sense of identity of who they are and you know like building that at an early age like i think it i actually do genuinely believe it 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 does form how kids develop and how they see themselves and 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 what they if it all goes well andy like yeah well let's talk it through the cost then all right let's let's talk it through like he and this happens all the time on public transport sees some homeless guy like whacking off and he gets jizzed on his face Get another life lesson i want to spare the child that life lesson he's got the rest of his working life to be jizzed on by a homeless man Right. Have you ever been just on by a homeless man? No, but I know lots of people ah, well, and I have go. seen. Probability. But but I've been adjacent to the Low, adjacent. I've been, I've been adjacent. <laughs> adjacent. Yeah. Can we, can we blank out the word jizz? <laughs> um, but you know what I mean, right? Like think of the craziest shit that's happened to you in your life. I guarantee nine out of ten times it's on public transport. No, but, uh, yeah, I, I look. I, I'm a defender of the free range uh, parenting movement. I think we've gone way too far the other end of the ex- extreme. All I can say on this matter is that Channel Nine Parental Guidance, the TV show, it had the playoffs between the uh, Tiger parenting style and the free range parenting style. And Penny and Daniel uh, were unveiled 
as the winners with Australia's best parenting style beating out. Man, I'm waiting for the name. Give me the okay, name. Hang on. Beat out Kevin and Debbie's tiger parenting style, which deliberately sets out to drive children hard to overachieve and be really good at maths and violin. What a useless comparison, like pitting two different kids, not, you know, like against each other. How could they possibly come to that conclusion? I don't even, this is why I don't even trust Channel 9 for my news, let alone parental guidance. I mean, and number one, I don't want to hear Debbie and whatever. I want to, I want to compare, you know, Tom and Nancy to like Jing and Gua Ji. That's the kind of tiger parenting I want. Well, all I've got to say to you is that there's season two starting soon. So, um, uh, you can uh, find out for yourself. Yeah, no respectable tiger parent's going to go on that reality TV <laughs> show either. There's there's no time in between piano and, and violin lessons. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt the episode. If you're enjoying our content, make sure to hit subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you never miss an episode. Let your friends know about us. Your support means a lot and word of mouth really helps. A great way to share with your friends is to comment, engage, like and share some of our social media posts. We're on all major platforms and you can find our links in our show notes or our website www.themiddle.site. And guess what? We've got even more for you. We're building a subscriber email list so we can give access to content that you can't get any other way. Check our show notes to find out how to get added to our subscriber list or visit our website at www.themiddle.site. Thank you. And we'll return you now to the episode. So we recently had a chat with Natalia Godoy from the Quality Podcast. And, you know, there was quite a few elements to this whole broad topic called, you know, feminism. And there's virtually no way we could cover these issues in a single episode and, and indeed we didn't we only sort of you know touched the surface in that episode but i guess we want to come back and revisit um some of those topics that we're curious about yeah that's right andy and give us a chance to you know fumble around in someone else's backyard for a change so i think it was uh that's what we'll do today what was your take after that episode i really enjoyed the the chat that we had with natalia moving from a conversation between you and i and i was thinking to myself as we were having this conversation that this might be a little bit how you might have felt in the white privilege episode or the race issue where you're on the incumbent side of the power debate in a way, right? So not only do you want to talk freely, but you you also want to balance the sensitivities and, and make sure that that rapport is building as the conversation's going. When you're talking to a person, you know, whether it's about race or, you know, gender experiences, it's hard to take away the personal experiences from like the theory, theoretical underpinning or the frameworks that you can use to actually conceive of and think of the issues. Yeah, I think it's just part of the continuity of the conversation, right? If there's something that you're brand new to, you almost have to have that first conversation to cover that conversational landscape before digging into the nitty gritty. So I think one of the, there's, there's many angles you can, you can cut, come in at this problem. One of the things that I think we could explore is the gender pay gap, right? And this is something that I think gets a lot of conversation. There's a lot of videos and um, recorded debates about this on both sides of, you know, debunking it to actually looking at the data and how that's changed. I mean, Andy, when you look at something like as broad as the gender pay gap, where do you sit on that response of it being a data-driven approach to um, explain discrimination against women? I mean, it, it has to be data-driven because that's, I mean, the, the concept of a gap is only borne out by data. However, unfortunately, it's so difficult to 
get your handle on something that is determined by, you know, you can't do univariate analysis on something that has multiple factors explaining and accounting for pay outcomes, for example. So often what happens is there's this figure that gets put around that there's a, you know, a gender pay gap, you know, there's different figures that, that would be put out there, but one might be to take either some sort of average or a median earnings um, for, for men and women. And then, okay, men are higher than women. So, all right, there's a gender pay gap. Then you might have, you know, a degree of analysis put on top of that and say, well, you know, on average, women tend to work less hours than men. So, if we adjust for that and let's say do it on a per hour basis, then you, you might look at it and say, okay, well, we've We've adjusted it for that, and now the the pay gap is slightly smaller, but it's it's still there, right? It's still quite significant and more than what we would accept as as a society. But then, when you actually really go further and you start to unpack all of the layers, so down to like industry composition, so which jobs are women working in? There are more women in some jobs, and there are more men in other jobs, right? And so, how do you break it down for and control for that. And so you have all of these different factors. So it might be, you know, years of experience. And we do know that that impacts um, the earnings of, of women in the workforce because they are on average more likely to be the primary caregiver of young children. So and they have a, might have a few years out of the workforce. So if you control for that, then that will start to impact their earnings over, over a lifetime earning sense. Um, but then you've got all sorts of other questions as well, like you know, do women tend to uh, want to, on average, proceed up to the higher ranks of more executive levels of, of management, for example? And you can certainly have a conversation about, well, what are the barriers to women putting their hands up for higher paid positions within organizations? And you can say, well, it's, you know, boys club and cultural issues or whatever. But if you're purely looking at like the question of a gender pay gap, if you genuinely have fewer women applying for senior roles than than men, then you would expect that to play in as well. So you get this kind of one figure, you know, titled the gender pay gap. But really, what there is is there's like you know a hundred different factors underpinning it, and some are pernicious, but not all of them are. And that's why I think this is so tricky because people just get going to like the headline figure, whereas you actually really do need to do the deep dive to to understand it a bit better. Yeah. So on those, you know, when you served up that clickbait style argument where they debunk the gender pay gap. How do you feel about that when they say that when you control for factors around some of the ones you've mentioned around time out of the workforce and elements of selection and take it down to other traits, that there actually isn't a significant pay gap between men and women? Well, of course, if you completely decompose all of the different factors that account for differences in pay between men and women and you control for them all and take them, take them out, then of course you you would expect um, there to be much less gender pay differences relating purely to gender. But I think the problem is that on average, men tend to possess more of those factors which assist them in earning higher earnings, and women tend to possess more of those factors that that tend to bring their pay down. So it's not so much that you should ignore the gender pay gap, and not so much that you conclude there's no problem and we you know this is just a non-issue. But it's more that we actually really do need to understand what those different contributing factors are, because some factors may not be pernicious. So, but some factors may be pernicious. So, one one might be, you know, just as a thought experiment, imagine one factor is that, you know, I guess assertiveness, right? Willingness to ask for a pay rise, willingness to to negotiate a higher 
salary upon commencing work in a new job if on average men possess that personality trait to do that and therefore they get paid more even though they're not better they don't perform better or anything like that then you know maybe we do need to look at that particular segment of it yeah to me for a long time um before all these debunking conversations started to gain prominence it was very much this idea that it was like a women earn 70 cents for every dollar a man earns right and that was the quoted line for a long time from some of the studies. And what people, you know, at a glance took from that headline is that, you know, if a man and a woman applied for the, the exactly the same job and they, they, gained, they gained the same job within an organization, the woman would be earning, um, you know, have a 23% gender pay gap. And that's simply not what that statistic is trying to say, right? It's just saying on average, there's a 23% gender pay gap when, that, when those stats came out. And that's reflecting all the different variables that include, you know, occupational selection, industry selection, and all those other things that we've been talking about, right? So I think that's where some of the confusion comes from as well, right? Yeah. And I mean, the reason it's important to break it all down is because there's no policy intervention available to anyone to just simply get rid of it, right? To wish it away. There's no law that you can make to get rid of you know, at 23% or whatever the yeah. figure is. Um, you have to actually attack the underlying drivers of it, things like career progression. There's some opportunity for them to stay connected to the workforce, like whatever. It's But it's those other things you've got to look at, not just sort of wish it away. Let's do a little bit of a speed round. I'm going to read out a industry and you're going to let me know as fast as you can off the top of your, top of your head, whether it's male-dominated or female. All right, you ready? Yep, yep. All right, we'll start with some easy ones. Healthcare. Female. Engineering. Male. Retail and sales. Female. Pretty good. Non-profit sector. Female. Social work. Female. Childcare. Female. Transport and logistics. Male. Finance and investment. Male. Marketing. Female. Public relations. Female. <sighs> Too good. I thought maybe public relations might, <laughs> might get you. Yeah, it's funny how there is um, kind of... You just know, right? You don't even really have to... It's like, um, I'm not sure whether you've ever dabbled in French before, but it's like when you, you get asked, like, is, is this masculine or feminine? You just kind of, you just, can cut, just got these instincts for certain th objects being yeah. as such. But one thing, um, just as well, while we're putting stuff on the table, uh, yeah, you know, just to underscore this, this question of like factors contributing to differences in, in gender pay outcomes, right? And how subtle and, you know, they're, they're, they're not necessarily discriminatory. They're like, they don't necessarily come from some form of discrimination. Because I think actually like when we talk about like the gender pay gap and issues with it, it's that aspect of, of discrimination that I think people really, really are uncomfortable with, right? That, that there's still some form of discrimination going on. And that's something that we want to do away with, but often they're, they're really subtle factors. So, I think a really good study that speaks to this and and like i just to be clear like i'm i'm presenting this study not as a like a slam dunk against like the the gender pay gap or anything like that but it's more just to to demonstrate you know how some of these things materialize um so uber did a study where they use their data right so they're really rich data um and and they can look at everything from you know the the nature of like how how its drivers drive, they can look at the time of day, the location. You couldn't have better data available than, than what Uber has. And they actually looked at this question, is there a gender pay gap in the, in the pay of, of male Uber drivers versus female Uber drivers, right? 
And so what they actually found is there's a 7% pay gap in favor of men. And so that begs the question, well, like how? How is that possible? Because it's almost impossible for there to be discrimination on Uber because people don't know uh, who their Uber driver is before they log onto the platform and, and book the thing that don't, you know you don't get to choose who your driver is and and so on. So well, how do you still have a residual seven percent pay gap? And so what this study found using all of the Uber data is of that seven percent, they found that like twenty percent of the pay gap was due to location. So where men would drive and they, the routes and the neighborhoods that they would visit, another 30% of, of, of that 7% pay gap was due to experience. So within a six-month period, 60% of men quit, but a higher proportion of women quit at 76%. So over like, you know, a two, like a two, three, four, five-year period, um, the really experienced um, Uber drivers tend to be men rather than women because they're on the, the platform longer. Um, so that accounts for another 30%. And surprisingly, um, Roger, um, do you want to guess what the remaining 50% was due to? Read maps well. <laughs> You're going straight to the couch. <laughs> no, um, the other 50% is due to speed. So, men speed. So, male Uber drivers, they drive faster than, than women Uber drivers. So, um, and that accounts for the other 50% of the of that 7% pay gap. So, anyway, it's, wow. it's a bit of... Um, it's a bit of popcorn, really, that study, but nonetheless, I think it it speaks to you know some of the the nuanced factors at play, and and you know if you if you're worried about that seven percent, for example, then you know you could do well to understand yeah the the contributing factors as as Uber has done. So I mean, I, I was obviously making a joke about the maps, right? Reading maps, but I think that um, how should I put this? That's one of the few areas where there is solid research in terms of gender differences when it comes to uh, very broken down skills, specifically, you know, spatial skills such as mental rotation and spatial visualization, you know, when they rotate patterns and flip them and so on. On average, there is this skill is higher represented in males than females, right? So this kind of old adage about women can't read maps and things like that seems to be correlated a little bit potentially to that to that data research, right? Well, of course, but the Uber platform is um takes away that issue, doesn't it? Because it just tells you where to drive, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But just, I'm just, you know, trying to defend my my map, my sexist map <laughs> comment. Always looking to justify your misogyny. <laughs> if we went back to reading paper maps, I'm sure most of the population, whether they were male or female, would struggle as well because it is practice, right? Maybe to, to move on, you know, I guess... You know, in, in the episode with Natalia, you raise your example of the, the bowling ball and the feather, right? And I guess yeah. um, maybe just for our listeners, did you want to give a elevator pitch sort of summary of that before we continue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically, this is an analogy for the world, you know, the male and female based on the famous experiment where they drop a bowling ball and a feather at the same time from the same height, so say from the top of the Empire State Building, and they drop them and they observe what happens. And of course, under natural, normal circumstances, the bowling ball comes plummeting down to earth first and crashes into the ground, and the feather you know, meanders down much slower. But if they create this same experiment, and they have, um, under a vacuum, so they, they take all the oxygen and all the gas out of the air, and they now drop the bowling ball and the feather, what they observe and what they can um, repeat is that the bowling ball and the feather hit the ground at exactly the same time. 
because there's no resistance for the feather to to kind of work against. And under this analogy, you know, this is a this is something where the bowling ball represents men, the feather women, and the air and everything that's stopping them from hitting the ground at the same time is um, you know, is sexism, it's gender norms, it's societal expectations, it's the patriarchy. And so it gave us a little bit of a analogy to start, you know, inquiring against some of these questions. Okay. So one one of the reactions to the to the bowling ball and feather analogy, I guess, in the in the episode was, um, you know, it doesn't matter, and and I guess you know that was certainly in the context of like equality of of opportunity, right? So of course it doesn't matter, right? You should both men and women should have equal access and and equal opportunities, and of course, you know, when we talk about gender differences, like we're talking about like a, a bell curve, you know, or some sort of distribution. So, for example, there would be female basketballers who would be much better than the average male basketballer, but the average male basketballer would be above the average for, for females, right? Because of, you know, a whole bunch of things, including height and, and all sorts of factors like that. So, so I guess it doesn't take away the need for equal access to opportunity, but I guess the, the, the purpose, I, if I understand your motivation correctly for raising the the bowling ball example is to really draw attention to the the, the friction and the factors that work against women today, and that that leads to like a different outcome than what they might have if they grew up in a in a different example in, in a different environment. I mean, the analogy opens up a discussion about differences in in men and women, right? So I don't know if maybe we could talk a little bit now about your views and and thoughts on beneath all of the societal impacts like fundamentally what are we left with i like the analogy because it gives a place to have the discussion right and i always start with that side of bowling ball versus feather to some people that would totally enrage them right because they start off with this idea that there aren't really any meaningful differences between men and women right we're we're kind of the same it's a social construct around gender it's a scale and actually, this idea that we are we you know men are from Mars, women are from Venus is just a it's just a big lie that the patriarchy kind of tells you to to kind of put you in your box um, as a woman or or what and also as a man I suppose and um, and I hear that kind of thing a lot and it's important and it's relevant in some ways because if you are on that side of the discussion, it's a totally different discussion <laughs> on what on what precedes it, right? If you don't actually actually believe there are any there's anything there from the start, we're just tabula rasa, blank slates, and everything is given to us as we go through life, rather than starting with differences. It's a totally different conversation about um, how this plays out in the world, how equality plays out in the world, and that's why it's very important to me, right? Because if you do acknowledge differences, then it's this idea is similar to, in my mind, the whole colorblind thing that we were talking about with race. Because one is that you know it doesn't doesn't really matter or it's not relevant to think of us as different. We're all the same. A man, a woman can do anything a man can do, and vice versa. Versus, no, we are different. We are diverse in very specific and meaningful ways, and we excel at different things. And perhaps we can design the world for each other rather than just for for one person. And both of those lines of arguments exist in the feminist kind of canon. And I know that some of the materials that I've been reading and listening to in the last month or so are diametrically opposed in that respect. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it is worth coming back to the the difference between 
this conversation and the race conversation in a moment. But before we we touch on that, in terms of there's like three questions in my mind, right? The first question is, are there today differences between men and women? And I guess if you look at like on average across whatever characteristic and some characteristics, there's no difference, but in some characteristics there are. Certainly on the basketball court, right, there would be differences because of physical factors, right, like height. But let's say in terms of something like mathematics, something a little bit more vanilla like that, there would be this, uh, you know, kind of view or there might be a perception that men are better at, at maths or maybe boys are better at maths than girls, right? And that may even be borne out in the data, Right. So we might be able to look at the data and say, on average, you know, the top performers in mathematics or the top cohort of performers in, in mathematics for, you know, boys perform better than girls. Right. And that, and that might be a thing. But the question is, does that actually mean, biologically speaking, that m- the male sex is better at that than the female sex? So because there's all sorts of cultural factors overlaid on top yeah. of that that might actually produce that result. Um, so, I guess the first question is, does a difference exist on a particular characteristic or trait? And then the second question is, what if there is, and it's borne out in the evidence and the data, then what what are the factors underpinning that? So, the second question is, is it a biological difference or is it a cultural difference? And to that example of mathematics, it could be that uh, given a different cultural setting, girls could be either as good as boys at mathematics or they could be even better. It's just that the identity of boys being good at, at mathematics, you know, is what encourages and incentivizes on yeah. average boys to fill that that role. And then I guess the third question, you know, I guess uh, has a lot of meat on the bone is does it matter? Should we, should we care about it? So, and just to finally circle back to the race question where it's different, I think where it is different to the, the race dimension is there are less differences between racial groups of population as you know there are between men and women because there are obviously biological differences between the sexes, but it's just whether that um, impacts the kinds of things we're talking about today. Yeah, I mean, we reached out to um, Charles Murray, but we couldn't get him on to talk about the bell curve. So I, I still have questions about the IQ distribution across races, but we'll keep that one for next time. I didn't have any luck with Richard Hernstein either. It's an interesting place. And I think that expectations and stereotypes that drive a lot of this as well, right? Like you talked about the maths and STEM, um, they've done studies and they're, they're able to reproduce where, you know, if you self-declare your or remind someone, a test taker of their gender and, and it triggers the gender expectations that women aren't good at math or men aren't good at English or whatever it is, don't excel at English, it does tend to um, manifest in the test scores, right? So there, there is this idea that the mere fact of asking you to confirm your gender before taking a test does somehow mess with your mind and you, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think when it comes to those elements, you know, I think that it is a bit of a harder situation around like so what if the that that plays out in small ways and it's cultural and societal but i think i start with them the easiest stuff right like like you said the biological factors and that's kind of out there for all the world to see and it doesn't take much mental gymnastics to get on board with that so a really good example that is talked about in invisible women right which is littered with data elements that actually says no the problem is that there's not enough data that's sex aggregated between men and women and therefore, we don't have female data to design the world. 
And one of the examples they talk in there that was really compelling was female grip strength, right? So female grip strength, they looked at the female grip strength of trained athletes, right? And compared them with untrained men of similar situation. And they found that even the most intense uh, female athletes still had grip strength only below, I think, the 40th percentile of untrained men. So it's not even a difference that you can train out, right? So if you take something biological like that, which is really easy to understand, men are on average stronger than women when it comes to grip strength, and it's not something that you can train towards to overcome. Is it really that much of a sexist leap to say that there would be some applications of grip strength that would advantage men in certain industries? But I guess um, often these debates are not so much looking at physical differences because I think the physical differences are obvious apparent, right? No one would argue that I don't on think average, they are these days. I think they're generally conceded that on average men are stronger physically and, and bigger and whatever, right? Even for, even for hormonal reasons, right? When we look at some of the questions like do men prefer to be engineers, you know, at a higher proportion than women? And, and I, I guess when we're talking about these sex differences in terms of like the mind of the female mind or the the male mind are they different they're, so they're talking about the psychology of of males and females and do they have different preferences is is there actually a biological inclination to things rather than people for example and i guess this is where it tends to be quite up you know open for debate so like one of the most contentious um, fields of study for feminists is evolutionary psychology because evolutionary psychology looks at this question and says, well, you know, um, men have evolved traits, psychological traits and characteristics, and so have women, females, because that has assisted in in them procreating and they have had to fulfil different roles and there's been different strategies that they've adapted and so that does tend to account for fundamentally a biological explanation for, let's say, that question of men preferring to study engineering, that that does actually translate into, into that outcome, as opposed to the Cordelia Fine argument, which is, is more a pure argument that this notion that there are these evolved differences, that's actually vastly overstated, and that fundamentally it's that parents buy their you know male offspring trucks and things like that, mm-hmm. and buy the, the girls' dolls and pink, pink fluffy fairies and stuff like that. Yeah, that goes back to the start, right? If you don't believe there are differences, you you would tend to discount evolutionary psychology as a whole. And, and those things definitely go hand in hand with the feminist authors that I've read, right, um, if they lean onto that side. I, I kind of, to me, some evolutionary psychology really resonates with me, right, as a, as a theory and, and as a the differences in psychology. So just to rattle off a summarized view, like if you were to start at level one of broad categories of differences, psychological differences between men and women, you know, the things that come up are communication styles. So women have more collaborative language, while men are usually much more direct and assertive, again, influenced by social and cultural elements. Emotional expression. So I think you've got things like on average, women tend to be more empathetic compared to men. In, in most tests, that doesn't mean that men can't be empathetic, but just on average, they're more, women are more. Aggression, so this is definitely in the research when it comes to physical aggression. But again, women have uh, more relational aggression. So basically, that's a nice way of saying gossip and 
calling someone a bitch and social exclusion. Risk-taking. Risk-taking is one that comes up a lot, which is uh, a big part on um, explanation for why women live longer as well. Uh, we're more, men are much more likely to engage in risk-taking behavior. And then finally, we've already spoken about it, is the cognitive ability. And, and these are things like that say that overall intelligence is roughly the same, but there are some small differences in uh, localized and specific cognitive ability, such as the spatial one that we, we spoke about, right? Spatial awareness and rotation models and things like that. So yeah, I think that to me, when, when I think of evolutionary psychology, I love it because most people have this idea, this, you know, men, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and that we're just on these diverging train tracks moving further and further away from each other. And evolutionary psychology says, no, like we are how we are as a gender because of each other. We are causing ourselves to respond to each other, right? We're in this spiral, this dance with each other. Men seek power and resource because that's what women demand of us. And women want that and all these other signs because they want their offspring to survive, you know? So we're locked in this dance together and, and we're the way we are because of each other. And I think that's uh, something that I think we don't remember enough of sometimes. So I don't know what the the core takedown arguments from, you know, feminist philosophers would be on, on evolutionary psychology. But if I'm going to come up with my own to bring that perspective forward, I think it would probably be things like that it kind of throws out this sort of almost fatalistic view of the world, right? And a lot of those studies like uh, I'm not sure of the methodology of the specific studies because I know that there are ways that you can do it, for example, with newborn babies that are yet to kind of be influenced by culture and, and yet they can still sort of exhibit differences and, and, you know, then there's other like twin studies and things like that. But, but nonetheless, you know, one, one view would be, well, they're just picking up the impact of culture, right? Not, not necessarily that, you know, you can't just ascribe everything to differences in, in, in psychology from a, a genetic or biological sense. And then probably the other argument would be these impacts are like wildly overstated, right? So the history of gender relations has been, you know, women are the this inferior sex, right? You know, 200 years ago, women would have, have been viewed as almost like um, children, right? You know, oh, we shouldn't give them the vote. We shouldn't let them make any decisions about, you know, complicated things like family finances or we shouldn't, uh, you know, like they were, they were really infantilized. And, of course, we know that was all quite wrong in, in the approach. So, I think when looking at kind of these sorts of arguments coming up with these factors and saying, well, this does justify, for example, you know, engineering as a field of study being you know, eight, whatever the figure is, let's say eighty percent men, twenty percent women. That oh well, this is this is fine. This is just the way it is. Whereas in fact, there are cultural factors making that number the the way it is. It might only reduce it to sixty percent, sixty forty percent, right? You might still have a a gap, but you would have a much smaller gap if you actually address the cultural factors that weren't related to gender biological differences. Let's expand this out a little bit more to encompass this idea of equal opportunity versus equal outcome. Because I guess that's where that's the that's the tagline, right? That that usually gets thrown around as a talking point. So, right? Like I'm all up for equal opportunity. If there is a woman who wants to go into mining, then you know we want to make sure that they can do that and they have access to do that. But that does not equate to that we need 50% of female representatives in the mining industry, right? So. What are, your, what are your thoughts on like expanding that out? Because this then starts to go into part of our conversation on diversity quotas and things of that nature and how this tends to get 
you know, this is this is the uh, this is the bad faith takedown, right? That the feminist movement is really only going after cherry picking their industries and jobs in you know nice air conditioned buildings with jobs of high paying power, white collar jobs, um, and not really caring about you know other industries that men dominate. I think probably the the framework's right. Like equality of opportunity, you know, doesn't necessarily have to mean equality of of outcome, uh, as in fifty fifty split on gender, you know, makeup of every job in Australia, right, or of every job on the planet, right, you know, that may not happen. But I think that said, equality of opportunity is more than just simply both men and women can apply for this job. It has to consider a much broader range of factors, right? So, I mean, think of like a building site. Culturally, for cultural reasons, like I could think of many reasons why the average woman would not want to work on a building site. Like I can- that that makes total sense to me. And that's not related to physical abilities. That's related to, you know, the culture of, of building sites, right? The way that you would be treated. A lot of men wouldn't want to work on building sites for that same reason. But it's it's gendered, right? A lot of that is gendered, right? It's not just generic rough and tumble. It, you'd be picked on or you'd be treating, treated as, you know, the weak person on the building site, even if you can do everything that the blokes can do, right? So, like, you can't talk about, for example, equality of opportunity and say that, well, you know, the opportunity for for a, a man to apply for this job or a woman to apply for this job, you know, they accept all genders in the application, therefore we've ticked that box and we've we've achieved equality of, out, of opportunity. You can't, that's not how it works, right? It has to be, no, we've, we've created a workplace that it's as attractive for women to work at as it is for men. Yeah. And um, there's this worrying trend of, uh, of this uh, bringing in female executives for businesses that are in a whole lot of strife. So they're always set up to, to kind of with this monumental task to turn things around from the shit. And the criticism there is that they're actually not being set up to succeed in some ways. So that was an interesting take in some of the data that I've read recently as well. So we've just covered whether these differences are, are biological or cultural. I mean, in, in reality, they're probably a mix of, of both, depending on the characteristic that, that we're talking about. But I just want to ask, like, the third part to, to what I said out earlier, does it matter? I'm really interested now to maybe talk about the family unit and how gender plays a role in terms of the roles typically undertaken by mothers and fathers. Just wondering if you could maybe now give me your views on, on that and how gender differences impact uh, the family unit. Yeah. This is the bit that I, I feel is a little bit lacking, right? With all these things, right, when you, when you look at the genders, it's a way to divide in some ways because you're trying to separate the experience and the issues that impact women over men. But what I don't understand sometimes when I hear stats around, you know, on average women have this percentage less wealth or whatever it is, they never talk about the family unit and, and the household. In reality, there's a huge percentage of women that are part of households, whether they're attached to you know familial relationships or they have spouses and things like that. And they play different roles. It's, it's kind of a teamwork structure that is in place. And it served us really, really well for so long you know, throughout history. And, and this idea of growing a family unit and a household of income. You know, We talk about household income all the time when it comes to taxation and all sorts of things, right? If, that sometimes when you break it down to an individual level, part of me does sit back and say for, for women who are part of a household, does it really matter? If, if there is some kind of underlying advantage to men for all the different reasons that we've spoken about, don't they also get to take advantage of that? I mean, I don't know 
what kind of household has separate bank accounts and things like that, right? Like, is, isn't it a shared model underneath all of this? And when they, and, and this gets me to with paternity and maternity leave, like, you know, that really what happens behind the scene is the household is doing the best they can with the resources they can afford within the system and the industry, whatever it is that they're working to kind of achieve things together as part of a team. Um, now, obviously, I'm understanding for those that aren't, you know, they're not in a relationship or they're not have a spouse and a, and a family or, or a partner. I totally get that. But I guess my point would be that it's a big part that's missing from when when numbers get thrown around about, you know, women retire with, with less or on average, they, they have different income levels of this X percentage or whatever it is. Like I, they, yeah, I never hear them talk about the family unit and households. I think what's happened is this question has been conflated. So there's obviously, certainly from say the 70s onwards, female participation in the workforce has increased and that's been like viewed through the lens of liberation and, and equalizing um, the opportunities available to you know the sexes and and making sure that you know we don't have defined gender roles within like the household right but you know children have essentially lost a parent looking after them full time men haven't given up you know their desire to also work so it's not like we'll keep the model where we had one parent at home and and managing the household and, and one parent in the workforce and it could be either the mother or the father we haven't moved to that world we've just moved to a world where both parents are, are in the workforce well, well there's two things i'll say to that and to reinforce my point housing is a great example of that right because if we're honest with ourselves m- most of the middle class wealth in australia comes from expansion of housing property right for the average australian and regardless of any inequality in average incomes between men and women attached to households or in a spousal relationship, you know, both people are on the title for that house, I can guarantee you. And they're both getting that vast percentage of equity as they go through. Now, this idea of the changing dynamics of dual income and the fact that now women are able to earn just as much as men and in, in fact, increasingly earning more than men in a lot of ways, I think this then pushes against this evolutionary psychology point of view too, that men understand at a deep level in their psychology that they need resources to protect and provide for the women in their lives. And that's what women are attracted to too. And now don't get me wrong, this is just like eating preferences, right? Like, you know, just because from an evolutionary point of view that we are attracted to eating high fat, high sugar, um, high salt kind of foods doesn't mean that we do that every time we eat. But it doesn't stop the fact that we want it in the background of our minds. And so I think this is where it breaks down this idea that if you switch the script and all of a sudden women are earning more and they're the providers, that the family unit can just carry on as it has done for you know throughout history. Because of our evolutionary psychology, I'm a little bit more skeptical and that we can rewire ourselves in such a fun- fundamental way, which presents us with a problem, right? Because like I said, at the end of the day, we're, we're just a team trying to work together and trying to get the best out of life. But there are things that are then working against us. And we can see this from the data such as The Evolution of Desire by David Buss, he goes on to look at some of these studies where if you, you would think that if you have a high-achieving woman who earns more than their male counterpart, the average male counterpart, that they would then not really care about money because they have the money. But the opposite is true. They're actually even more likely to want to find a man with equal or higher resource. So it doesn't even adapt in the way that we think it would when money is no longer an option, for no longer an issue for women. 
it actually puts it on steroids. See, I, I, I'm not sure I find those arguments that compelling though because like I think no doubt that these are trends and born out in, in the data, but at the same time, th- these can be the result of culture too. So, But what does it matter? I, I think, well, well, it doesn't matter, but you can change culture. I mean, it might not matter for today, but you can change culture, right? So if we, whereas you can't change biology. So I guess in terms of your example of, of the way that men react, right? My question, or at least what I would propose or hypothesize is that 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 comes down to status, right? So men are are status seeking or we're all status seeking beings, right? So the notion of being a stay-at-home father, for better or worse, currently in today's culture is of low status, right? Unless, you know, it's it's one of those situations where it's just a, you know, a short-term arrangement and then, you know, the father goes back to a high-paying executive job, right? And in which case it's it's viewed as like some sort of, you know, what a wonderful father you are for taking off, um, you know, this time. So, it's, and it gets applauded sort of thing. But if you're a stay-at-home dad who, you know, it's your wife that, that goes to work because let's say she she earned more money prior to having children than, than the father did. And so, you know, maybe they make a financial decision that, that she goes back to work and, and that he stays at home. That's a status reducing exchange, right? But the way it's a, the reason it's a status reducing exchange isn't because of anything inherent in that that's that's bad. It's because of the way society views that. So if it wasn't perceived in a negative light by peers, then, or if it was viewed as, let's say, a progressive thing to do, then suddenly that becomes a status seeking move to make. And so I, I think it's that's hard, why it's I a think- bit of a leap, though, Andy, to, to think that it's not a status seeking thing because of some of the evolutionary wiring that we just spoke about. Well, I think it predominantly it's not evolutionary wiring in the brain. I don't think that's the reason. So I think if there was a study that was saying that this data suggests that this is this is what happens I would I would probably say it's not because of some notion of like you know uh, uh, the male side of the species you know on the savannah needing to go and you know find the next lion to hunt you know that's not what I think drives that decision I think what drives that aversion is that your mates at the pub will look down on you or you know it's it's more fundamental like that's where the the brain works like at that level not the direct level of I need the paycheck coming in because that's too far removed from the actual circumstances that have given rise to those notions. I, I think fundamentally it's an issue of status, right? And you can change that over time. But that's one of the evolutionary tenets, those status and resource, right? And that they're linked well, in there. I would separate resources from status in this occasion. So, I mean, there, there used to be no male nurses, right? This was a profession that males just didn't do. But now that's increased and, and more and more... Uh, men are entering in, into nursing. And I think one of the reasons is because it's taken that long for it to be such a like a status destroying maneuver to make, right? And now there's less negative connotation associated with it. So, you know, I, I just, I think these are things which you can change, right? But I suppose most importantly is that even if you can't change all of the difference, so maybe, yes, you're right, maybe there is some you know, the psychology, there is some sort of, oh no, I need my ability to earn resources or whatever. Maybe that accounts for some portion of it, but culture's probably a predominant factor, even if it doesn't account for all of it, uh, at least it accounts for some of it. And that it's that component which um, you can address through, you know, progressive change in, in society and culture. Yeah, that's hope for us all. What's your thought on unisex toilets in the office? Well, it just gets away the need to navigate the whole question of like transgender. Right. Like
don't need to you know, worry about just like, the toilet. I'm tired of saying that's just taking one more.